Hi, I'm filmmaker Ashling Clark, and I'm delighted via the Galway Film Flat to be talking today with Joe Dante. Joe has made many of our favourite films that lots of us remember really fondly. I know I do. Things like Gremlins, The Burbs, The Howling, and I'm delighted to chat to him today. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing just fine, thanks. I wish I was in Ireland. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I could be anywhere at the minute, kind of in this lockdown and not really going outside very much, but yeah, it's always nice to be here. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a real delight. I've long been a fan since childhood of your films. I know many people that I know feel the same. I watched The Gremlins every single Christmas and did so with my son also when he was small. I watched The Burbs probably once a year at least. I'm a big fan. And also The Howling. I actually watched it about two weeks before I got the uh, message asking me to do this talk. I'd actually watched The Howling again. So there you are. I wanted to talk to you first about how you started out in film. And I know that you worked for Roger Corman, who, of course, himself is a big, iconic uh, movie monster person. And you started out, if I'm not wrong, by cutting trailers. Is that right? Uh, I did. I, uh, I, was, I wanted to be a cartoonist when I was a kid and uh, to get into art school. Uh, I had to take painting and things like that. I really wasn't very good at it. And, and they said, cartooning isn't an art anyway. And I wanted to stay in art school because my math grades were so terrible that I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. Uh, and so I took a film course um, because it's the closest thing to comic books and, and uh, it, you know, the storyboards and the whole thing. I mean, everybody knows that uh, comic books are the gateway to movies. Um, and I had always liked trailers because they were punchy and fun and had lots of hyperbole and, and, and sayings written all over them and so I, I i did a couple of trailers for pictures that uh, for a company that roger was running at the time it was strictly non-union which meant that it would hire kids just out of film school or right off the street um and the pictures were successful and i ended up as part of the trailer department of his company which they never had one before they only had they would bring people in off the street and try to teach them how to do the style that he liked and then they figured well why not just get some kid and put him there and uh, you know we'll have him do the trailers and then there were some others who joined and um we finally had done so many trailers for not very good movies uh and in analyzing a trailer uh, you know you have to look at the movie and you have to figure out okay how do i cut this thing down to three minutes or two minutes and still get the essence across and you learn a lot you learn about you know, what, what's needed in a shot to cover it and what's needed to make somebody go from point A to point B and whether or not you really needed to reverse or not. And we started to, you know, pick up all this information and we said, well, maybe we can do a movie as good as these pictures because these, some of these pictures aren't very good. A lot of them were from the Philippines. Um, and so uh, Roger said, okay, um, you've got to keep making trailers, but it's got to be the cheapest movie that we've ever made here. And you've got 10 days to do it and $60,000. And we figured the only way that we were going to ever make a movie that was releasable with action scenes is to use the scenes from the trailers that we had been cutting and make them the action highlights of the movie and have it be a movie about a movie company. And at the time, Roger was doing a series of three girls movies with teachers and nurses and the girls would take off their clothes and get in trouble. Uh, but there would always be some action scenes. And so we started to write our script around these scenes from other pictures and dress our actresses as the people in the clips and uh, we made this pretty silly movie called Hollywood Boulevard, which is in fact a, a very accurate representation of what it was like making low budget movies in the 1970s. Mm, yeah, 
I think that's really interesting. And you're very right, I think, about trailers. It's kind of like, you know, as a writer, if you're writing a script and then you try to do the log line and you find that you're really struggling, it's just a couple of sentences. But that's when you know there's something essential missing. And I right. think the trailer in the same way. They get to the essential heart. What is this? What makes it tick? And that's a really useful way of kind of getting into what is this movie? What makes it work? You know, speaking of Roger Corman, and he was famous for kind of torn from the headlines. Isn't that what they said? He would take things that were big, salacious stories and turn them into movies. And I was wondering about that and in terms of the howling. So the iconic moment in the howling, for me anyway, I think, is when the um, heroine, who's the newscaster at the end of it, live on air, she ends it all. She takes a gun and ends her own life because she doesn't want to turn into this monster and she wants people to know what's really happening out there. And that's obviously a reference to Christine Chubbuck, um, who had done this in real life a number of years earlier. Do you think? Is that uh, coming? Sure that, that, that entered into it. Uh, you know, Roger's ability to make a movie based on the headlines was uh, pretty remarkable. He, he made it in 1958. He made a movie called War of the Satellites, which uh, managed to hit theaters like a month and a half after Sputnik came out. And uh, everybody was marveling at how, how, did he, how did he get done so fast? And I guess he had some divination of what might be happening up in space and sure enough he was able to capitalize on it and he managed to do that with the biker movies and he managed to do that with the trip uh, which is about lsd uh, and um he's uh, really made quite a, a, a career out of not just his own movies but movies from uh kids like me who he i wouldn't say dragged out of the gutter but it certainly brought into a, a movie business that would not have been very welcoming otherwise yeah, and of course he started off the careers of lots of directors that are really big now that we all know and love really well. Um, yeah, so I was thinking then about, uh, first of all, you talk about that, about Roger Corman and his headlines, and I'm thinking about the trailers again and how the headline is kind of like a trailer for this article. You know, it's the essential story condensed into this uh, small piece of space and how you can use that to kind of jettison off into something else. But moving on from that, uh, Spielberg comes in after this. So you you directed Piranha, and that was being released in the same year as Jaws 2, which could have been seen as kind of like coming up head to head against uh, Spielberg's Jaws. But then, of course, you went on to have a relationship, a working relationship with Spielberg. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, it turned out that um, uh, Universal was not happy that uh, this ripoff movie, Piranha, was coming out the same year as Jaws 2. And um, they were going to get an injunction, apparently, to try to stop the release of the movie, as they had done with several other shark movies that were made overseas. Um, but in this case, Spielberg saw the movie and he thought, he, he realized that it was a spoof. And so he told them to knock it off. So it, it, in, in a way, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had a career because if they, if they hadn't released the movie, I never would have gotten a second job. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think like, yes, it's a spoof, but it's a very warm hearted spoof. It's a fact. It's not well, of course, it is. I love these pictures. I mean, I, I love the genre and, uh, and and there's a lot of political stuff in Piranha, which was John Sayles uh, certainly added. Uh, and we've, we've sort of done that in our careers as to 
try to stick some subversive messages inside the uh, the package that uh, people are uh, you know buying paying the money to see um and uh, and it's 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 worked out very well for both of us as as, as Corman alumni yeah how important do you think that is do you think that's a kind of a responsibility or is it just a personal um a personal preference to engage politically with your films well I know I don't know that a lot of people consciously do that. Uh, from my my feeling is that um, if the movie isn't personal to me, then, uh, then I, I have difficulty. So I try not to ever make a movie that I wouldn't go see if someone else had made it. And so uh, the 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 effort to keep your personality alive in the movie you're working, it, it can be very difficult depending on how what the budget is and how many producers there are and what the expectations are and all that nonsense. Um, but if you can manage to look back on your career and say, well, this looks like a movie that I made, as opposed to this was an assignment that I did that's you know indistinguishable from five other movies on the same topic. Um, the, the, the trick for me has always been to try to make that difference, to give the movies a personality where people can identify you from movie to movie. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny actually, because nowadays the horror film scene is very is very political. Everybody wants to make horror films that have some kind of social commentary, since we had things like um, Get Out and stuff that is, is a scary movie, but it's about something. That's become the norm and expectation now, certainly in the conversations that I have. That's true. And, but Get Out is more in the tradition of the Twilight Zone, uh, you know, the, the, the TV show where, where, you know, it was a fantasy show, a science fiction show, but all the episodes were about something. And, uh, and I think you get out there, obviously it's a message movie, you know, it's a horror film first, but then it's also secondly a message movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So getting back to Steven Spielberg and Gremlins, and I think one of the things that makes Gremlins so iconic and so well loved and remembered is the creature design, and in particular um, Gizmo and how adorable he is. And first of all, we've got a wee clip that we want to play that illustrates that. Oh, isn't it cute? Has it got a name, Dad? Yeah, Mogwai. What? Mogwai. I don't know, some Chinese word. I just call him Gizmo. He seems to like it. So that's Gizmo. That's, that's how we meet Gizmo in Gremlins. And it, of course, became cemented in children's hearts all over the world. I know that I absolutely loved that film at the time, and I still do. Um, as, as I say, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that you're putting your finger on it, uh, that the picture has remained popular is because of Gizmo. And interestingly, uh, the credit for that goes to Steven Spielberg. Uh, it's not that he designed Gizmo. In fact, he was very picky about what the design was and he turned down many designs to our horror because we were trying to get things ready to shoot. And he, oh, that's no good. Finally, we made him the same color as Steven's dog and then he, then he went for it. Uh, <laughs> but his, in the original script, uh, Gizmo turns into Stripe the Bad Gremlin after about a half an hour. And we were proceeding, and it was initially more of a horror film, and we were proceeding uh, under those concepts. But when Stephen got a look at Gizmo, he said, no, I, I, th this is a mistake. He shouldn't turn into the Bad Gremlin. He should stick around and be the hero's pal for the whole movie, which I think is the key to why the picture has been so beloved over the years. However, in our case, it just struck terror into our hearts because we were totally unprepared to have this little bucket of bolts that we had created 
that was good enough to last for 20 minutes now had to be like the star of the movie. And so we had to go back to the drawing board. We had to do a giant gizmo, which was terrifying to see, uh, a huge gizmo head for the close-ups because the little one was so small that you just couldn't get the kind of subtlety out of it. Uh, and, we, and, we, and there were just numerous problems with trying to make this, this uh, technology work because nobody had ever done a puppet show in this um, you know, level before. Uh, and, but as it turned out, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I like the movie, I think it's funny and it's dark and all those things, but, but the key, I think, to, that has made it such a popular movie over the last 30 years or so, more, I guess, uh, is, is Gizmo. Yeah. Who, of course, they merchandised immediately. When the studio didn't really quite understand the movie. They were doing it as a favor to Stephen. It was a, not a big, expensive movie. And they said, well, it's his first picture for his new company. And so let's let him do what he wants. But, you know, as long as he doesn't spend too much money. So then when they saw the dailies of Gizmo showing up the first time, coming out of the box, you could just hear the cash registers ringing in their eyes. You know, it, it was like, holy crap, we can merchandise this thing. And so they, they, they piled on a lot of people to work on the merchandising over a very short period and managed to put out a number of toys and dolls and things like that. And they really did merchandise the heck out of it. And um, again, that was, it was a complete surprise to them because they really didn't quite understand the movie. But when they went to the preview and the audience loved it, it was like, oh, okay, it must be good. Yeah, well, he's completely adorable and we really feel for him. And we know that he wants, most of all, He's very human because we know that he wants to be good, that he doesn't want to give over to his his dark side. And that's what so many people deal with day and day out, trying to be a good person. You know, it's quite a complex uh, journey for that little gizmo. But I know I didn't know anybody who didn't want to open a box at Christmas <laughs> that year and find a little gizmo inside it. So, yeah, I think that's beautiful work. And ha had you worked with creatures before? Was this your first creature design uh, journey? Well, no, I did. You know, we had to we had to build the piranhas because they it was very hard to train real ones, uh, and so we those were puppets. And then on the howling, of course, we had to design the werewolf. Uh, we yeah. only had one werewolf, and which we had to with cutting make it look like it was a lot of werewolves. Um, and 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 I, I was a big Ray Harry Osmond fan, so I was I was a monster kid, as we were called at the time. There was a whole bunch of kids who were brought up in famous monsters magazine who were all disguised, who all thought that they were kind of just lonely nerds in their schools. And then they discovered in this magazine that there were other kids out there like them. And it formed a sort of a brotherhood. Uh, and so by the time I got to doing uh, Grauman's I was, uh, I had, you know, I was, I was pretty much of a monster aficionado. Yeah. yeah. I think the special thing about Gizmo is as well, is that um, he, whereas the howling, you've got monsters that are nasty monsters. And in Piranha, you know, they're obviously evil fish. But Gizmo makes us not, we're not afraid of him. He makes us feel for him. And it's little details like the trembling <laughs> when he jumps into the arms of the dad and his little trembling body and all of that just really makes us feel for this little creature. Oh, you and know, it's, at heart, it's really a boy and his dog movie. You know, I mean, it, 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 there already is a dog in the movie, but, but Gizmo is sort of like uh, his puppy. And, uh, and also Gizmo has a, a, a very um, infantile quality that people find very appealing and yeah. uh, and they want to take care of him. So in, in many scenes in the movie, he's actually treated like he's a baby. Yeah. And he's got the big eyes and all that. Can't help but love. So 
talking about your childhood and growing up, and I know you were big into the B movies, um, going to the see the monster movies and the uh, theater on the weekends and that kind of thing. What do you think it is that, because I was the same, we didn't have, um, I didn't live anywhere near a cinema, but my dad used to rent old horror movies, Hammer Horrors, the old monster movies from the 50s every weekend and we would sit and watch them together. And that was really formative for me and really what got me into this stuff in the first place. But what do you think it is that um, is so attractive about that? What is it that some children in particular just really cling to and then for their whole lives, they're big horror fans? What's the well, you got to remember, most kids' first experience at the movies is usually this: somebody, an uncle, or their parents take them to a, a Disney picture. And uh, you know, Snow White is got a lot of terrifying stuff in it. And Snow and Pinocchio has the, one of the great transformations of all time, where where the kids turn into donkeys. Um, I mean, Walt knew that the part of the appeal of fairy tales was was the, the fear part and the fact that they're scary. And um, usually there's a happy ending, although if you get into the real, the real fairy tales, very often they don't have happy ending. Um, but it's, it, it, there's a fairy tale quality to it. It, it. it is very appealing. And also, you know, the idea of being scared, it's the same reason why people go on roller coasters. I mean, it's to be safely scared and to go to the movies and, 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 and get all of that stuff out and then be able to go outside into the sunlight into your real life again is, you know, it is salutary. And people really do like that. But um, it, it's interesting, it's mostly young people who really like horror, they get into horror films when they're young, and I think it's partly because part of the appeal about horror films is dealing with death, and when you're a kid, death is just a, an abstract, it's just, it's something that you supposedly you're supposed to do someday, but you're never gonna, because you're a kid, you're gonna live forever, uh, and so they go to the Final Destination movies, and they think it's hilarious when people get, you know, uh, by buses and things, because it's, you know, something that's out of their wheelhouse of imagining um and and it, it, it the thing that's always amazed me is the, of all the genres um you know the, the the war picture the western and all the all those things that used to be so popular and so important there used to be so many westerns on tv in the 50s you wouldn't believe it but the horror the lowly horror film the one the, the one genre that never got any real love or any real critical approbation is the one that has survived uh, over all these generations. The, the horror films are just as popular now, or maybe more so than they were in the early 30s during the Depression. Yeah, there is Not something. Right uh, <laughs> there is something I think really primal about, and as you say, uh, with fairy tales and so on, humans have a long, long history of dark stories, and um, we learn from we learn from them. There's something cathartic. Uh, you get to dip your toe a little bit into really negative, bad things, but in a safe way. And mm -hmm. then feel that feeling, but not actually be at any risk. I think this is part of it. And um, for my part, I was uh, quite an anxious child. I was like constantly worrying about stuff that a child should, you know, weird stuff like bombs and everything. But then I grew up in a civil war in Northern Ireland as well. So I suppose it was rational for me to be quite anxious and on edge. And I've always felt that that fed into why I loved horror so much, why I gravitated towards it. I was far too young to see these things. So I was maybe seven when I saw um, A Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. Um, my mother totally freaked out, but I was completely intoxicated and I rewound it and watched it again, rewound it and watched it again. And was just something was very, there was a release in this, you know, there was something in it that stuck with me. And that's why I'm still such a fan of these things today. And um, 
Yes, I think you get you get into this a bit in Matinee, which is my favourite of your films. I really love Matinee. I think it doesn't get as much love as it should or it isn't as well known as some of the other films. But I have a clip that we play now that illustrates the point I'm making here. I don't think anybody recognized her. What, do you spend your whole life sitting in monster movies? A lot, yeah. Somebody like Herb or Vincent Price or someone. It's like they're my friends. That's a strange group. What are your real friends like? I don't have too many. My dad's in the Navy, so we move all the time. Oh, man. 500 new kids a year? That's scary. I remember the one time we moved. Now, this was to the big town, Hatfield, Missouri. I was petrified of those guys. Really? Oh, yeah. But see, now uh, I get my revenge. I get to scare everybody else, but it's for their own good. See, people who go like this at the scary parts, they're not getting the whole benefit. You got to keep your eyes open. What's the benefit? Okay, like uh, a zillion years ago, a guy's living in the cave. He goes out one day, bam, he gets chased by a mammoth. Now he's scared to death, but he gets away. And when it's all over with, he feels great. Well, yeah, because he's still living. Yeah, but he knows he is, and he feels it. So he goes home, back to the cave. First thing he does, he does a drawing of the mammoth. And he thinks, people are coming to see this. Let's make it good. Let's make the teeth real long and the eyes real mean. First monster movie. That's probably why I still do it. You make the teeth as big as you want, then you kill it off, everything's okay, the lights come up. <sighs> so that's what I was talking about basically. I think that's the essential magic of horror and why we return to it again, again, and again. And as the John Goodman character says in Matinee um, earlier in the movie, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis has just started, basically, and uh, there's a suggestion that they shouldn't run the movie because there's all this scary stuff going on in the real world and people probably want light relief. But he says, no, this is what they want at this kind of time. And um, my understanding is that this was true also in after the Second World War. There was a feeling that people would want light entertainment when actually they gravitated towards quite heavy, dark material because there's some something, noir. yeah, about, yes, exactly. And, uh, or even um, a noir like Brief Encounter, which is really about a, a, a relationship and an affair. They gravitated towards the murkier side of life or the darker things. They wanted to deal with, get into negative emotions at that time, which a lot of people were surprised by. But uh, for me, the whole, the whole of matinee, that's, there's my understanding of matinee. It's probably one of the reasons why I like it so much because well, I grew up in crisis too. And it's yeah, this, I was I was the age of the lead kid when that happened, and so it was very personal for me. I had a little brother who was approximately the same age as the kid in the movie, and um, we all thought that uh, it was the last weekend. We thought that there was going to be no school on Monday or ever, uh, and um, it was probably the as close as I could get to you, the way you felt living in New York in, in Northern Ireland during the, the trouble, uh, the the idea that uh, you just couldn't count on anything, that 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 the world could end, and you had nothing to say about it. It was just that was just the way these people were gonna, the way the adults were running the world. 
uh, and um, and it was a, it was a very scary time. And and it's it's very if it weren't for the movie, I don't I I which I think does ex exemplify that a little bit. Um, it's just very hard to get people to understand how believable it was that this was it. That this was all over. Yeah, yeah, I get that completely. And I think there's a minute, a moment in uh, matinee that is actually really quite scary, even though it's a, it's mostly a comedy, this movie. But when they, it's very poignant when the kid wakes up in the middle of the night and he thinks his dad has come home. And uh, he goes out into the living room. He thought he heard his dad speaking to his mum, and he's not there. But he goes and opens the front door, and then we see the the atom bomb, the mushroom cloud in the distance. And there's just that feeling of that this could happen at any moment. That this is just hanging over your head, the end of the world right here and now. That I really find find quite affecting in an otherwise quite lighthearted film. Mm. Uh, we used to walk to school, and and the kids would say, "Well, you know, what would you do right now if the bomb dropped?" And, you know, and it was like, oh, I, I, I'd go kiss Susie McGillicuddy, or you know, or whatever. Uh, but it was, it was, a, it was a constant. It was just a belief that hung over us and my entire generation. And yeah. I'm sure it a lot of difference in uh, some of the choices that they made. Yeah, it's a very traumatic thing to actually grow up through, and um, to still find space to be so light because your films are, most of them, are treading this line between horror and comedy. And I just wanted to talk to you a bit about how you feel those two things go together. I, for me personally, and the films that I make are very much horror films. I enjoy comedy as well, but it's just not the kind of stuff I write. But um, there's all there's a there's something in common. They're both about timing. They're about knowing when to deliver to deliver the blow. And certainly in terms of horror, I think the horror is actually whereas in comedy the joke is the is the satisfaction in horror the moment of the shock of the fright is a is a release in a different way it's we get to go okay it's over now the horror is in the space before that i just wondered if you had any thoughts on that like horror comedy well i've always found them to be very closely associated uh, partly because of the absurdity of the plots of most horror films uh and the fact that that you have to be careful not to get laughs in the wrong place which is probably one of the reasons why, even starting with Piranha, um, I was trying to make sure that the absurdity of the premise was not going to overcome the audience's belief in what was going on. So there would always be something to offset the, the scariness or offset the, the melodrama of it. it and, and it also made it entertaining. But you know, I grew up on the films of James Whale. Um, and of course, you know, in movies like The Invisible Man, uh, this old man is—he's he's crazy. He's, he's insane. He's, he's a homicidal maniac, and yet uh, he does things that are so unexpected that that it makes you laugh. But but in the but after you laugh, um, you know he's he throws a, a, a pot of ink at some cop in in, uh, in one scene, and then um, and that seems sort of funny. And then he beats him to death with a chair, which is <laughs> less funny. And uh, and I, I and, and you know in, in pictures like Bride of Frankenstein and, and uh, you know that that really do play off the idea that um, that the macabre has a um, humorous side to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
laughing and screaming are very closely related. And in fact, I was reading about this fairly recently that um, anthropologists, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that they, they understand how laughing evolved was when um, prehistoric people would be out. Let's say you've got a bunch of prehistoric uh, guys and they're out doing a bit of hunting and then there's something rustling in the bushes over there. That could be a saber-toothed tiger. That could be something really scary. One of them will go over and investigate what's in the bushes over there and everybody's holding their breath like this. It could be something that's going to kill us all. But then he sees that it's just like a little kitty cat. You know, it's just something small and cute. It's a raccoon or something. And he laughs because the release of the fear is, is amusing. And that's how laughter evolved because he's communicating to them. It's okay. And then it's a social thing. They all laugh together because they're saying, oh, it's okay. Look, we were so silly, but we're okay. We're safe now. Oh, that's the laughter of relief. And that's, that's what you get very often in a, in a horror film. That if, you, uh, if you scare them, then they'll, they'll scream and then they'll laugh at themselves. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the trick is to try to orchestrate that in a way that, that works for the story and uh, you know, keeps it going. Absolutely. There's a difference in people laughing at a horror film where it's not meant to be funny and they're laughing at how ridiculous it is or laughing as a relief when they've got scared well, laughing at themselves for getting fooled you know yes <laughs> yes absolutely one of the things that strikes me about your films is in most of your films i feel like there's a great feeling of warmth for families and even if they're not uh if they're not standard um normal nuclear families there's just a real sense of warmth in that family unit in the home in films like um the hole and gremlins and matinee as well people who are related to each other in one house a family pulling together and getting through this thing or facing something to get past that the birds as well of course and uh, i think that's interesting is that something that's that you feel is a mark of your work uh i've never actually um thought about it in that way but uh, but I think that's just that comes from my feeling about you know I mean we all come from families we all have you know relationships and uh and the one place that you tend to want to retreat when things are uh, are at their most fraught is back to the family you know it's 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 what it's your basis for how you think it's how you've been brought up it's that's uh, part of who you are yeah it, it does feel like that in your films, that that is the wholesome place that you can return to. You know, it's, that's where it feels safe. Thinking about the birds. And um, so we have these people who are living in the suburbs. And my feeling about this is that, and you might disagree with me totally, but sometimes people talk about it as a, a fear of outsiders kind of movie, where my, my feeling is that these guys actually want the outsiders i feel that they're um they're excited they're getting to live at the the boys adventure you know they it's going to give them some excitement in their lives whereas being in the suburbs feels like it, it might be slightly calcifying and this is a way for them to feel like vibrant again and we no, have a clear that's true they, they they need it they they need this this uh disruption in their lives which are otherwise yeah. very boring Yes, <laughs> that is the major thing I get from it. We have a clip. Do you know what this is? It's a bone. It's a femur. It's a femur bone. A femur just happens to be a human thigh bone, right? Wait, how do you know that? Biology 101. 
I mean, look at the size of this thing. You think this came off a chicken or something? Where the hell did Vince get this? He dug it up from underneath the fence. Ray. Ray, there's no doubt anymore. This is real. Your neighbors are murdering people. They're chopping them up. They're burying them in their backyard. And for me, it's just, there's a real sense of, even though they're um, saying using these words like your neighbors chopping people up, burying them in the backyard, that they're secretly really quite happy that this adventure is happening to them now, that they get to take part in a boy's adventure story that um, they would have read when they were kids. And you, and you notice that the, the wives are a lot less uh, enamored <laughs> this person. I did know that. And uh, yeah, because someone said to me when I said I was going to be talking to you, oh, um, I've always wondered about the verbs because it starts out as this kind of uh, fear of outsiders, um, kind of satire for want of a better word. But then at the end, their fears are um, proven to be, they were, they were right. The outsiders should have been feared. But for me, it wasn't really about that. I mean, you can... Uh, yeah, I think you understand what I'm saying, that actually I think they needed it to be true. They needed it to be true for them to feel properly alive again. They were sitting there in their deck chairs in the backyard drinking beers and, you know, watching football on the TV. And they just needed something to make them feel like they were not calcified suburban past it men. Uh, I think that's true. And I think in the end, when uh, when, the, when the dust clears, they're, um, it's like they've been to war. It's like they have their own mythos now. <laughs> they've, yeah. they've risen to the occasion. <laughs> Interestingly, one of the neighbors as well is a veteran, isn't he? Yeah. And he too just gets as childish as they do. They literally do ding dong ditch, <laughs> run over, press the doorbell, run away again. And they just turn into kids again. And really that's what it's about for them. That makes them feel alive again. It's funny that it's, a, it's such a popular movie and it, you know, it, it kind of came and went when it was new, but um, over the years it's gained such a um, cult following. I mean, it's got a, it's got a, there's a trivia book about it and there's a website where people, you know, write in, they look at the movie and they write in their insights and all that stuff. It's really quite remarkable how, what a long life it's had. Yeah, I, well, I think it's a really great movie and um, I don't know anybody who doesn't love the birds. As I say, I watch it probably once a year, but uh, just to kind of spinning off from that idea about, the, about these men who get to be boys again and who get to feel full of life and everything. I think there's perhaps something going on in your movies where um, around masculinity, around uh, the, the idea of the ideal male or the hero and all of your, all of your heroes aren't either aren't quite there yet, they're too young, or else it's like they just they're just slightly past it and they're trying to recapture it again and it's like a feeling that that moment never actually happens that moment of of being the hero being the the man on the cover of the boys adventure mag what do you think about that well i think it's probably best illustrated in inner space where uh you know your 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 lead character is kind of nerdy uh and um his the, the guy he's uh got inside him is, uh, as you said, uh, a guy uh, uh, who's a little bit past his prime and is trying to prove himself again. 
And, um, you know, when I was first handed that script, it was uh, not a comedy. It was, it was a, a serious, if you can believe it, spy movie with that plot. Uh, wow. And I suggested that maybe that wasn't something that I thought I could make work. And I uh, went away. And when they came back, they had hired a new writer uh, whose gimmick was, he said, well, what would happen if, if Dean Martin was shrunk down and injected into Jerry Lewis? And that I could understand. Because when I was a kid, Dean and Jerry were very, very popular, uh, and uh, and so it's it, 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 it's there's a, there's a lot of masculinity discussions uh, in that picture, and uh, it, it's it, it's another it's a movie that was really a, a, a lot of fun to make, and um, again, it's another picture that's it's gained a lot more popularity over the years. Yes, I haven't uh, seen that in a while, but that was definitely a big favorite in our house. When we were young we watched that over and over and over again we love that movie it's so good but um yeah i think that is where it's most prominent this idea of um, masculinity and what that means and for me it's the most one of the most charming things about your films is that these heroes that we really like and that are we feel very warm to and none of them have to perform this hyper masculinity uh, in order for us to like them and in fact they're grappling with it they're most of them seem to be grappling with it in some way, in matinee as well. Uh, the kid, um, Omri Katz, is dating this girl and she's got this big, scary ex-boyfriend and uh, who, do who does represent that kind of tough guy, I guess, but in a way that doesn't really work out for him or for anybody else, you know? Oh, but he's the sensitive. He's a poet. <laughs> yes, he's a poet. <laughs> I forgot about that element. He is actually, yeah, he's a poet. He's quite, uh, yeah, so I like how you complicate masculinity in that way and think about it a bit sideways. I think that's very appealing. Uh, when it comes to masculinity, there are, I have no peers. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great way to look at things. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Uh, Joe, it's been so nice to learn a little bit more about your films and how they were made. And as I say, I've been a fan my whole life and uh, it's really been a great joy. And it's my pleasure. Thank you to the Galway Film Fly as well for putting this all together and thank you to everybody at home who tuned in.